Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hello again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Believe in Horse Racing with Ken Rudolph. I am Ken Rudolph. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. This is all courtesy of the Kids with the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network from professionals, as we come to you from Los Angeles, California. Of course, you can get this. Anywhere that you get your podcast, and do me a favor, continue to support us, rate and review and subscribe so you can stay in the mix because this is the progressive, ongoing conversation that we're having every single week. Okay, so this episode is wide-ranging, but it's all connected. We go from longtime horse racing journalist, award-winning columnist, Jay Hovde, to Kentucky Poet Laureate, Frank X. Walker. And then we roll on into the Long Shot Lounge with Mike Samich and the Samobombs from RacingDudes.com. The first two parts of that are all about an article and a book. So Jay Hovde wrote an article this week, and it was really kind of shining a light on the black jockeys that are really up and coming in thoroughbred racing. And he did it by going back and referencing a 10-year-old book about Isaac Murphy and Isaac Murphy's words, his journey, his poetry, It's all put together by the poet, Frank X. Walker. So I reached out to Jay, who's been a friend of mine for decades, and we talked about his career covering racing and and, and where racing may have gone wrong and the way it markets the sport and how it doesn't market the sport to black people. And then that led me directly to Frank X. Walker, who is a teacher at the University of Kentucky. And so we go seamlessly from Jay Hubdy into Frank X. Walker, talking about everything with the book and race relations within horse racing. And it's a very intriguing conversation for me, and it ended up turning into kind of a therapy session where I found another black man in this country who had a very similar experience to what I'm, I've, I've had of the past 20 years and what I continue to have in horse racing. So here we go this week in Believe in Horse Racing. We start with Jay Hufty. All right, our guest today is um, an old friend, one of the first individuals that ever interviewed me when I started for TVG more than 20 years ago. He's a five-time Eclipse Award winner. He's a member of the Joe Hirsch Honor Roll at the Racing Hall of Fame. He's a senior columnist for Blood Horse Magazine and Blood Horse Daily. And more importantly, he found a way to lock down the greatest female rider in the history of thoroughbred racing. It is Jay Hovde who's also married to one of my favorites, Julie Crone. Jay, how you doing? And it's uh, good to hear your voice. Uh, how you doing? We're doing great here in uh, Carlsbad, just north of Del Mar. And uh, gosh, as, as we think about this time every year, we can't wait for Del Mar to open no matter what form it's in. Right. Even if you're just looking at Del Mar on your TV screen, it still does something to you. It still just kind of calms me down. It's amazing. Just the aesthetic of Del Mar is just so pleasing. Inside and out. Well, I plan on getting a table at the uh, Brigantine uh, for the entire meet and just sit there with my binoculars and watch them go by. In your opinion, because I really feel like you are the person that can answer this question, what has changed when it comes to covering horse racing? Because I feel like, and I hate this term, but I feel like it does apply. I feel like there were, there were glory days when it came to journalists covering horse racing. It was much more revered and respected and there was much more of an appetite for it from the public they wanted to read these beautiful stories that you men men and women were putting together what happened to that and what happened to journalists 
wanting to cover horse racing? Well, I think there's two or three threads that you're referring to there, Ken. Of course, there's the fundamental changes in, in, uh, in newspapers, journalism, and the media itself. Uh, the uh, sports departments all over the country in major and minor uh, markets have contracted dramatically. So you don't have uh, riders dedicated to horse racing beats any longer. Uh, and believe it or not, there used to be, you know, uh, I can't even count, but uh, uh, off the top of my head, probably 30 different dedicated uh, uh, beat reporters uh, around the country writing regular basis uh, for uh, their salaried employer. Um, so that has changed. Uh, that means you've got uh, columnists or, you know, off-season baseball or hockey writers that are are deputized to go cover a horse race. And, you know, they might not have the, the you know, the, the depth of historical perspective uh, that, uh, that you might like to see ideally in the coverage of, of major events. Not that they don't do a, a fabulous job, but it's it's just not the same, you know, reading um, X reporter as opposed to uh, Bill Christine or Bill Leggett or William Knack or some of those guys that lived it and breathed it for so many years. So that's changed on the media side. And then you've got, of course, the, uh, you know, the, the, the rise and monopolies of the uh, the major team sports including the uh, uh, college football and final four all of the things that suck the air out of the sports viewing and, and attention room uh, and horse racing really can't elbow that aside it's almost like uh, you know for years and years it's that thing going on down the block that you know uncle george is interested in and yeah. so it's it's been it's it's been culturally marginalized and I think you've always been outstanding at describing and bringing people in to that world the world that I didn't know anything about until I was invited and and that's the key term that I'm getting to here Jay I was invited into the world if I not had not been invited by TVG I don't think I ever would have stepped foot at a racetrack and the reason why is because the perception the way that racing is marketed the way the commercials or anything, pictures, anything, it doesn't say to me as a black man in this country that I'm welcome there, that there are other people that look like me that are there. And so we're at a time right now, it's a pretty pivotal time right now. We've had these moments before throughout history, but right now it seems a little bit different. And I feel like maybe the recent article that you put out that harkens back to a really interesting book that Frank X. Walker put out about 10 years ago, it's called I Dedicate This Ride. And you have a recent article that kind of ties that in. Ten years ago, that book was written. And it kind of takes, takes us through the words and the deeds and the emotions of Isaac Murphy, the, one of the greatest jockeys in the history of this sport, and his family. And I'm wondering, why did you decide to kind of bring this book back into the forefront of people's minds and, and write this article? Is it because of what's happening in this time, or you just felt like there was something else there. Well, I pretty regularly um, tune in to Frank X. Walker's work. He's an educator in Kentucky. Uh, he, uh, he coined the term Appalachia when it comes to a literary niche. And uh, he's uh, 
former poet laureate of the Commonwealth of, the, of Kentucky. Um, his, his work is just remarkable. Uh, you got to, you know, you got to savor it to to believe it. But um, when I looked at a recent uh, poem he wrote and and published uh, on his website, I said I think I'll open his book again. And it just happened to be the 10th anniversary of I Dedicate This Ride, which I had done a, a review of it for my readership 10 years ago uh, and spoke, uh, communicated briefly with Frank at the time and thought, well, you know, if ever there's a good time to talk about, you know, what it used to be like in terms of, of the relationship of the races in horse racing as characterized in this particular book of verses. Uh, that time might be now. So, you know, I, I took a look at uh, some of the, uh, some of the passages from the book. And essentially, it's, it's uh, the poet having immersed himself in the history of this individual, Isaac Murphy, who is uh, held to be uh, the greatest black jockey America's ever produced. Well, we can correct that. He's one of the greatest jockeys, blue, white, brown, pink, orange, or plaid that this country has ever seen. His record speaks for itself, and uh, I, uh, I urge anyone to uh, just take a quick little Google trip through the Isaac Murphy uh, material, um, and uh, and and take a look at what the world that he was living in in the latter part of the 19th century, post Civil War, Jim Crow, and uh, how uh, how it, what evolved in this country in terms of uh, horse racing, and it's. Uh, uh, not as much as its treatment of uh, uh, the African-Americans who worked in it, but it's, uh, it's sort of uh, evolution into what, for all intents and purposes, looks like what you're perceiving, that a lily white sport whose advertisements look like uh, fraternity and sorority parties at USC. Uh, that's uh, unfortunately uh, a perception that's backed up by quite a bit of reality, although as I know you've noted time and time again, when you made your first trip to Hollywood Park in Englewood, well, that's a, a little different kind of neighborhood from Santa Anita Park or Lone Star Park or Emerald Downs or any of those. And uh, uh, you felt like this is a place maybe I should have been already. Exactly. Uh, every racetrack should feel like that for anybody walking in the door. It just should, because it's a, you know, for all the snooty kind of, uh, you know, high-end uh, mentality and attitude, the, the, the sport of kings, the, you know, the, the titans of capitalism owning all the, the best racehorses through the years. Well, that's true enough. I mean, it takes money to, to do that, but it's, it, it is the sport of the masses. It really always has been. And without the masses, there would be no horse racing. And the masses include everybody. You know, I feel like that approach, for, for me at least, and I think it is for a lot of people, I think it's more powerful. And it has more sustainability in the sense that what you did when you wrote this article, it spoke directly to me, and I'm obviously living in this moment with everyone else, and it made me go back and revisit and then when I did that, I, I stumble upon poems like this one here. They call me mechanical, stoic, and all business at the track. But riding a, fat, riding a horse fast is easy 
compared to my toughest job, holding reign over the large, angry, bitter, colored man that lives inside. That, I do believe, underscores, illustrates the experience of pretty much every black man in this country. Whatever your job is, is actually easier compared to the thing you have to do every single day, which is behave a certain way and accept certain treatment in this society. And so you being a historian, um, I really felt like what you did here is going to carry on because it, it makes people go read a book as opposed to a tweet that just makes you react. Uh, what you wrote kind of takes me back deeper and helps me to understand myself better by kind of pointing me back in that direction. So for that, I do appreciate it. But it also makes me, as you were doing, kind of reflect on what's happening now and, and trying to figure out how we get to a point in horse racing where it doesn't seem so biased, where it truly does seem fair, equal, and open. I don't know how we get to that. Uh, I feel like you've been covering this long enough. Maybe you might have more perspective on oh, that gosh. than I can. I mean, that's uh, those kinds of things are way above my pay grade. I, I think that uh, it, in ways, you know, the, the institutional and the individual need to come together at some point uh, in, in positive ways. I would recommend it to your audience or anyone who's curious to to sort of um, buttress their their curiosity about the history of horse racing because, you know, where it's been is where it went and where it's going. So, you know, you need to look at, at the particular arc of history and decide, you know, uh, is, is progress being made? Is, is, it, is it just wallowing around in some, some uh, mythical version of itself uh, or is it uh, regressing? Um, there's two books that, uh, that, that beat everybody to the punch, and they're, they're terrific books, uh, written, both written in the last 20 years. One's uh, called Race Lines by uh, uh, Phil Bees, B-O-R-R-I-E-S, and uh, he uh, isolated on the Kentucky Derby, and he found some 40 vignettes about uh, uh, black trainers, black jockeys, uh, who played key roles? <clears throat> excuse me, key roles in various Kentucky Derbies through the years. Um, most of those years being, you know, well over a hundred years ago. Uh, but it's a it's a it's a wonderful book, uh, and it, it gives you a real good baseline um, to go from. And then the other one is uh, by Ed Hodling, H-O-T-A-L-I-N-G, and uh, his book is uh, strictly focuses on black jockeys. Uh, of course, leading off with with Isaac Murphy and his story, uh, told in a very uh, you know straightforward biographical style. Uh, Willie Sims, uh, Jimmy Wingfield, uh, the two other uh, very well known black riders from the late nineteenth uh, and early twentieth century. All three of those guys, by the way, are in the Hall of Fame. Isaac Murphy was in the first class of the Hall of Fame in 1955, before Shoemaker, before R. Carroll, before anybody else. That's the esteem with which he's, he was even held in 1950s America. So uh, I would recommend those, those books um, and, uh, and just pay attention to what the guys are doing now. I mean, we've got some great, terrific, exciting 
you know, uh, athletes out there of all colors, of course, but boy, I tell you, watch Deshaun Parker ride. Oh, that's my guy. Rocco, Rocco <laughs> Bowen, what a, I mean, what an athlete. Rocco Bowen, uh, the fellow that, uh, that I focused on yes, in this particular column, making a comeback. Uh, he's from Barbados. Um, but uh, he, uh, uh, one of the most exciting, excited parts of his comeback, he said, is that I'm going to be riding at racetracks where Deshaun Parker rides. Yeah. And, <laughs> and you know, Rocco's won just under a thousand races and Deshaun's won, I think he's closing in on 4,000. I'm not sure. Don't quote me. Oh, no. That. Parker's got more than five. Oh, he's 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 crested five. Yes, sir. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Forget. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. Um, yeah, he's. I mean, he's. Uh, he's just. He's amazing. Rocco said he folds down on that horse like a paper bag, and then, and you just picture just how, you know, how how uh, how one with the horse Deshaun gets. Uh, I wish that he was riding out here in California. Uh, we've got Barry Harvey out here, Barrington Harvey. Uh, he rides at the. Uh, oh gosh, he rides anything with four legs. Right, he rides Los Al a lot. He rides Los Al a lot. He rides up north. Uh, I saw him at Ferndale. Um, he's a you know, remarkable athlete, and of course we got Kendrick Carmouche, and uh, he's uh, he's established himself in New York and New Jersey very solidly. Uh, so you know it's, but the problem is if you can name them all, then there's not enough. Exactly. Yeah, and that the thing that you're talking about is is something that's always been there. I mean, I think you can talk to any horseman out there, and they'll tell you that they they have black people on their staff, and they they think that they're fantastic, and they have since the beginning of time. And they've respected their work and the way they go about it and the results that they get. I believe that that is true since the beginning of horse racing. The only problem is I don't think those individuals ever saw anybody on their staff that was black as their true equal. As a person that had the same rights and same uh, potential that they had. And so I feel like that's what brings us to where we are today. Yeah, those guys didn't get promoted to assistant trainer. Those guys didn't get to, you know, go to lunch with with the owners, right? To to, to become familiar with with them, uh, so that maybe that owner was thinking, well, I'd like to send a couple of horses to, you know, to, to Laurel or to Tampa Bay, and uh, you know, let's uh, let's give him a chance with this and that. And the other thing is, Ken, of course, I mean, why was there a tradition of of mostly you know black men in horse racing? It's because they used to not get paid. They were called slaves. Yes. And that's that's the tradition of blacks in horse racing, slavery. So, you know, I mean, the, the sons of slaves, such as Isaac Murphy, uh, that were exposed to horses at the farm where they were, the family was enslaved before the Civil War. Um, he grew to love the grew to love the horses and grew to find that he had an affinity with the horses and he hooked himself up with, uh, with a, a mentor named Eli Jordan and Eli was a former slave uh, who was still uh, training horses and, and teaching young men how to be riders. So, I mean, if it, if it all, that, I mean, if that's how you've populated, you know, your workforce, that's, that. That, that that lingers. That, that history doesn't go away. When I jumped into horse racing, you know, 20 years ago, every time I go to Kentucky, or every time I went to Kentucky, I didn't feel, I didn't feel welcome. Hmm. Um, 
And I, I, I watched one of your speeches and you said that someone said, hey, are there any other black people in Kentucky? What is that perception? What, where does that come from? Did you grow up with that as well? People not thinking that there were, there were black people in Kentucky? Well, I think growing up, it wasn't something I experienced because I was on the inside. I really think it has more to do with uh, how outsiders see Kentucky. If they've never been, if they've never been to the, we probably have five or six pockets of black folks, of legitimate black communities uh, in the state. But I think mass media has done us a disservice because, you know, Kentucky is uh, considered part of Appalachia. And everything about Appalachia in mass media has come through the lens of Dukes of Hazard and Beverly Hillbillies and oh yeah andy griffith and movies like deliverance even as recent as hbo's justified the first season anyway the first season uh they always showed it as a 100 percent homogeneous all white space and you never saw people of color there uh, so when i encountered an individual during a presentation out in washington state university campus people with education degrees in the audience and and somebody actually asking that question, are there other black people in Kentucky? Uh, my first response was to, to start counting them or us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, wait a minute, don't move, wait a minute. Don't, don't stand too close to that one. Uh, did I count you twice? Yeah, and I, uh, I so I said out, you know, out loud, I, you know, I was just kind of stalling as I processed. And I said, well, I'm not a test tube baby. And I had two parents, <laughs> I'm one of 11 kids that's, 13 they had parents that's 17 you know and the guy was waiting for me to get to the end of the count uh i just started cracking up and you know tried to explain that you know uh i imagine he's only seen kentucky fried chicken commercials with a white colonel uh you know with a an old old man who claimed to discover the or created the best chicken recipe ever which always made us laugh here in Kentucky because we know we uh, we know off the record he stole that recipe from a black woman, uh, but you know you don't get that in those commercials. And we also know that you know when when people see the Kentucky Derby on TV, the you know, most important two minutes in in sports, uh, that you don't get the history of horse racing, thoroughbred racing, of you know the African American trainers, jockeys, hot walkers stable hands, you know, groomers, you don't see any of that. And I went, went to the backside and everybody on the backside was of color, you know, black or Latino and mostly African-American or I guess Canadian, uh, African-Canadian. Uh, and I talked to some of them and they talked about, you know, having migrated north out of the United States, you know, to a safer territory because at, you know, at one point during post reconstruction, you know, African-Americans, at least in Kentucky, were being chased out of horse racing, uh, especially the jockeys. And Isaac comes out of that, you know, that template. You know, he stopped racing before uh, post-reconstruction kicked in. But, you know, it's it was never as white as it appears to be. And then, you know, you don't get the history unless somebody tells it. Uh, so that's part of, right. part of my challenge of not just being interested Basically, but being a Kentuckian, being African American, Kentuckian is telling our story. Uh, you know, trying to almost fight some people uh, who insist that 
I can't be from where I am because everything they know about this place doesn't include me. So what did your journey into and how what was that like? Um, and especially I feel like for someone like you, uh, a, a poet and, and poets really immerse themselves in the words and what they mean. What was that experience like for you personally when you immersed yourself into the world and the words of Isaac Murphy? No, part of it uh, for me was a surprisingly steep learning curve because, you know, I was thinking I'm just researching Isaac Murphy, a jockey, uh, and that's all I needed to know. But every time I went to the, you know, I started going to, uh, to the early morning workouts and I strike up a conversation, you know, with a groom or a hot walker of uh, people from the backside. And I get these incredible stories. And in, the, in fact, in the book, there's a poem about, a poem called Groom that talks about the relationship between uh, a groom and a, and a horse. Uh, and I realized how, how broad the story was, how, you know, how uh, delicate the relationships were in an industry, not just, it wasn't just a jockey and a horse. That you, there were 10 other people connected with that horse and that race uh, that may have touched that horse. Could have been 10 other black hands, 10 other sets of black hands. Uh, and so, I, you know, I made a commitment to try to get uh, Isaac's whole story and spend as little time as possible with him on the back of a horse. And I think that's what made um, the book, you know, useful uh, and accessible to people who, who are out, consider themselves outside horse racing. You know, black people are always in this country in the middle of a revolution. Uh, and uh, right, what'd you say? I said always. <laughs> right? And so we are definitely in the middle of one right now. Mm -hmm. And one of the best things about me being directed back to this book is finding passages that kind of reassure me that this fight has been here all along and, and it will continue. And what I mean by that is sometimes we forget the previous generation and we say, well, they're not fighting the way we are now. Uh, I wouldn't have stood for that stuff that they dealt with back then. Right. And then I read a passage uh, from the book in this poem, and it's just simply stated, they call me mechanical, stoic, and all business at the track. But riding a horse fast is easy compared to my toughest job, holding rein over the large, angry, bitter, colored man that lives inside. Mm -hmm. and, and that's from Isaac Murphy's perspective. And, and I think the fact that he was able to kind of, he didn't really reconcile, but he was able to kind of separate the two and still compete and go out there and make a name for himself. That's something that really motivates me to this day. Yeah, and, and I would say that me too. It sounds like we both have operated in largely white spaces, at least professionally and maybe even growing up. Yes, sir. Too. Uh, and, and that's, Part of the talk that I got from my mother was how I had to conduct myself in those spaces. Uh, and initially, it didn't seem fair to hear that from her. You know, it's like, why do I get all these extra rules? But I didn't understand. She was trying to keep me alive. Right. And uh, she was trying to give me a, you know, a set of rules that would allow me to, to not just compete, but to, you know, if I could rein in that anger and then redirect it in another direction and use it for something else that it might just help me succeed, you know, uh, even faster or even higher or taller, you know, once you realize that, you know, that just being even or being as good was not going to get you anywhere. You had to be better. You know, I, I wonder about that as well. I have a young son. He is nine years old. 
And here's what I've always wondered about black families in this country. And as we continue to evolve and, and progress, I never received a discussion from my father about how to <laughs> sublimate, right? He never said, hey, back down when that man is talking to you. He always said, stand up straight and look that man in the eye and answer that question. And to me, that was a, to show a sign of strength and a sign of self-respect. But when I hear a lot of parents talking about, especially nowadays, when it comes with, to dealing with law enforcement and, and telling their black child how to basically defer everything to that man at all times. And I've always, dis I've always disagreed with that. What is your perspective on that, that approach to parenting uh, black children in this country? I think it's a delicate balance. I think that uh, I think you get a kind of a maternal and you get a, you know, a, a fatherly way of dealing with the, the same thing. I, I had, you know, my mother raised most of us by herself. Uh, and, you know, she wasn't the typical, uh, she wasn't a soft mother. In fact, in high school, uh, her nickname was Joe Lewis. And, uh, uh oh, so she believed in uh, a good, fair fight. You know, her thing was, you know, if you get find yourself in a situation where you know you're going to be fighting, uh, she said, hit first and hard as you can. <laughs> so my dad said the exact same thing to me, the know, exact same thing. So it's not a prolonged battle, you know, you don't. But yep. but at the same time, you know, she didn't want us to pick fights. She didn't want us to be bullies. Uh, right. And I think. She also understood something that would be considered cowardly. Uh, you know, that Claude McKay poem about, you know, uh, do you die on your feet or on your knees? Give them a choice. Yeah. Uh, I think she was she was of that ilk. But she also grew up with a generation of people who still had that very Southern thing that was all about, uh, you know, acquiescing to, a, to a authority figures or anything white. Uh, even if something as simple as, you know, what do you do when you're on the sidewalk and you're walking down the sidewalk, you know? Yeah. Of, you know, even my wife is like a mother in this sense. I mean, she, I mean, the, the idea of getting out of the way as if you're in, as if the way belongs to somebody else just because they're, they're white or it's three or four of them. Uh, and this subconscious thing happens, you know, uh, and, you know, if you think about it in most spaces, if you're a lone black man walking and there are, say, three uh, white people, especially in Kentucky, coming down the sidewalk, the assumption is you can tell by their body action that say, you're going to move. Uh, yep. And my wife refuses to even, in fact, she even infringes on, I'll share the sidewalk with you. And it's like she goes bowling. Uh, and I always watch their faces they're so surprised that she didn't move out of the way or that she yeah. assumed that they were going to move. And you see this non-spoken thing that happens in their expression and they're kind of checking themselves and maybe realizing that why did they assume that was the case? Uh, but, you know, we're lucky an altercation has never broken out. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it's always been that, you know, why do you think I should move? You know? Uh, yeah. And it's, uh, I think for them, it's, they've been raised to believe that, you know, they are superior uh, and, and we're not. And so I think that kind of subtle 
racism is embedded in the culture uh, and society when things like that happen that are, you know, not something that has written rules about, but you just see it played out. You know, I was just thinking about, you know, as we're talking about dealing with that, the, the parents and, and the, the assumption that we're supposed to move out of the way and what has kind of been bred and taught into them. I had the exact same situation happen with my son. He's nine years old and I always teach my son be respectful and move out of the way. And I saw him riding his skateboard at the park and he's riding a skateboard and here come three white kids and they're riding their bicycles through the same area. And my son grabbed his skateboard, picked it up and kind of moved out of the way. And he was kind of, kind of, I don't know, he seemed like he was afraid. And I got so mad and I walked over there and I, and I pulled, I pulled him aside and I said, son, don't you ever do that again. Don't ever move out of their way again. Make them move out of your way. And I was super aggressive in my tone. And I, for some strange reason, it really hit me in a visceral way. It's upset me when he did that. And it kind of, when I see that poem again about when Isaac Murphy talks about holding rain over the large, angry, bitter colored man that lives inside, that was a moment where I was like, absolutely not, son. You will not move out of the way ever again in your life. You will not defer. Because the three white kids that were riding their bikes, they made no effort to even acknowledge that my son was on the path or that he had moved out of their way. And that upset me so much. And I, I think that I made a point with him because after that, he kind of went the complete opposite direction. He went and did a 180 and he refused to move for anyone for the rest of the afternoon. I don't know how much damage I did that day. <laughs> uh, but I think that's the, there's a thing about black bodies that happens as part of this you know, racist culture we live in, where sometimes uh, our blackness almost seems to render us invisible. There are, there are very few things that, uh, that hit me in such a visceral way as when I'm reading about the way that they, in addition to gambling, at the races that Isaac Murphy is riding in, they're also gambling slaves. And there's an entire group of black slaves over there watching him. He knows that his performance will dictate the future for them. And, I, and I've heard you say in some of your, uh, when you speak about how he's the very first kind of black athlete. And he's kind of, that whole concept of being my brother's keeper and having the responsibility of not wanting to let your community down. It starts there and it's still happening today with black athletes um, where they have this, this feeling like everything that they do affects all of us as people. Yes, uh, uh, I would say he's, what LeBron James is doing today, uh, that kind of pressure, that kind of accepted responsibility for your community, uh, you know, with the school and the, uh, the uh, scholarships, that that's a yeah, real yeah and very noble but comes out of a a relationship that you already perceive with you and your black community uh with the irony of that is i think about what feels like <clears throat> an effort to uh to rebrand michael jordan uh not, I, yeah the, the michael jordan i grew up with would not touch a political topic with a 10-foot pole uh, Absolutely not. You're right. And, and you know, there, there's a, a whole litany of comments he made where, uh, you know, like Republicans buy shoes too. Uh, yep. I mean, th those things come out of a space where he didn't have that relationship. He didn't perceive himself as having that kind of responsibility. Uh, but 
what you hear now coming out of the Michael Jordan camp is is more LeBron James esque, you know, more uh, about valuing that relationship and recognize their responsibility. You can't just be an athlete. And I've got a basketball player and a soccer player in my house, and who knows what the, the youngest son is going to be. Um, but you know, it's important for me to for them to to use sports, to not be used by it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, Isaac Murphy was an athlete, <clears throat> and I think that you know he was only five foot tall, so there was an angrier, bigger man inside him. Um, you know, who had to to show up to to compete, but who had to be held in check, or he might risk his own life. Um, but obviously, he did well. You know, we happen to live uh, two blocks from. Isaac Murphy Memorial Art Garden, and on that sp spot uh, was Isaac Murphy's mansion, he, where he and his wife lived. And uh, you know, my son and I have a two-year-old. We take regular walks up in that direction. He doesn't understand yet who Isaac Murphy is yet, but he understands that park is connected to horses because there are still sculptures and statues and the signage. Okay. Yeah. Talk about the space, um, and you know, so it's, I'm excited that he get to grow up in that space and. You know, before he goes to school, he'll know the name Isaac Murphy. Frank X. Walker, you have opened up my mind. Man, you have invigorated my soul, galvanized my spirit with this discussion. It, it has given me the strength that I need to continue doing what we do every single day because uh, the, the fight and the journey, it, it weighs on you after a while. Frank X. Walker is a Kentucky Poet Laureate from Kentucky. He is an outstanding poet an author and it's been 10 years since he put out the book I dedicate this ride which is a full immersion into the life and the words of the greatest jockey in the history of horse racing Isaac Murphy Frank thank you so much for your time um, I, I wish there was a, a way I could virtually like be there and just sit and listen to you talk man and just share some more of the stories because this has been an amazing time and I really appreciate it thank you thank you for your work uh, and your interest in, in Isaac's life you know we had you know, we have to tell his story every time, uh, you know, I open my mouth and I say Isaac Murphy, I feel like that uh, I'm stepping up to the plate and doing part of my response, my, my, my part of my job and it's my responsibility uh, and I accept it. Yes, sir. So thank you for uh, taking it even further to your audience and I hope they'll pick up a book if not my book uh, and read more about Isaac Murphy's life. Hey, here we go. We're going to roll on in the long shot lounge here on Believe in Horse Racing. And the, the one thing that I love doing is just scouring social media, trying to stay connected and plugged into the real players. Like I'm not a, I'm just trying to be a real player, but there are real players out there. And I noticed this guy, Mike Somich out there with racing dudes and the, and is it the Samo bombs, Mike? Is that what they're called? Cause you are bringing in prices on a regular basis, brother. Yeah, yeah, man. We call them the Samo Bombs. Uh, we have a lot of fun with it. We, we do uh, some free picks on Twitter and everyone gets involved. We'd like to, to find some tracks to play. And, you know, I'm, I'm much like you, man. I, I like finding weak favorites and exploiting them. And, and if you do that and pick four and pick five sequences, it just stacks up and you can get some huge prices home. And that's that's what we've really had a lot of fun doing. I mean, we hit a $15,000 pick five uh, back at Keeneland. We've had, you know, 
multiple, you know, $3,000, $4,000, $5,000 pick fours and fives. And I'm, I'm a big believer in just pressing the opinion. So I'll often play, you know, $2, $3, $4 pick five tickets. And I'll do it with singling two, three horses and leaving out favorites because I think that's how you really make money in the long run. It's kind of like you walk up to a craps table, man. If you, you sit there and you play for 10 hours, you're going to lose. But if you hit that one score, you can end up up. All right. The thing I also like about you guys is um, you guys do not punch down. You do not have time for that. You're like, uh-uh, I'm taking on I'm, people that are way bigger than me, taking on big races and no easy races at all. So now we move on. Gulfstream Park race number seven. On Saturday, one mile on the turf course. It's a maiden special weight. Could you find a harder race? Yeah, this one isn't very easy. I'm not going to lie. Uh, there's a lot of different directions you could go, but this is this is the race that can be a separator in one of these sequences. And, you know, this is the kickoff leg of the pick six. People are not going to single. They're not going to go too deep here. They're going to spread because they want to be alive. I mean, part of it is you want as long as you want much entertainment as possible. Um, for me, this is the perfect race to go against a favorite. I mean, if you go all the way on the outside, the 12 horse leading west uh, has Zaya's aboard, who's a jockey who I, I often will play against if they're on the favorite. I'll, I'll take a shot at them if they're, they're a bigger price, but I don't love Zaya's uh, on favorites. That's what we have here. It's a horse that was in the service barn. Uh, the service Navarro horses have not come back as strong as they were in those barns. Yeah. Um, and so these are the type of horses I like to take a shot against. And also the 12 post going a mile on Gulfstream's turf is not good. I mean, you, you're in that turn so fast, you end up getting swung four, five, six wide. So all of that leads me to say, let's, let's play against this 12. Um, Absolutely. I'm a sucker for a bug jockey, especially if that bug jockey's on some speed, because I feel like that weight advantage allows them to get out faster and hold on to that speed longer. And that brings me to the two horse fake muse. Um, I've yeah. been really impressed with Joseph Trejos. Um, and I feel like he might end up being controlling speed here. Uh, we're drawing the two posts, which is great. We're going to be on the inside. We're, again, second off a layoff, second out in that three-year-old campaign. Uh, Elizabeth Dobles is better second time out generally. We've gelded this horse, which I think is a pretty good sign. Horse sold for 130000 Uh Tapazar stands for 10, so we're getting a 13-to-1 sire-to-sales price, which I think is a solid, solid number there as well. And I like the fact that, again, we took a step forward from that, that two-year-old campaign out to the three-year-old campaign. I also like the confidence here. Um, not often do you see a horse drop to maiden 65 and then get bumped back up to the maiden special weight uh, arena. And when you see that, it makes me believe that you're going to see improvement from the horse. Uh, the two also only missed to leading West, your two to one favorite by a length and a half in its second career start. Um, since then, we've improved on the turf. Uh, we've shown more speed. We've got a bug jock up and inside post. I think a lot is going right for the two horse who, again, I think is going to float up from your six to one morning line. So I'm, I love fake views in this spot. I think it could be controlling speed and you can wire this field. Uh, there are a lot of great things with that pick. Uh, and I do believe that you're correct about floating up in value because of the, the bug rider and also because of the presence of the other speed in this race, the six Imperial moment will have Emicelio Armillo who has the reputation of definitely being a send type rider. You've got a three-year-old son of American Pharaoh. So everyone's going to go nuts over that pedigree. He's already shown some speed. Uh, do you agree? You feel like that's the kind of contender that takes all the money and then you'll float up because of that. And do you worry about the speed of the six in this race? The six is the concern. Um, one of the reasons why I'm not, as worried about the six, I think the, the last race showed the three's ability to stalk a little bit. So if we can't make the lead, I think we're going to sit in a really nice trip here. Um, I agree with you that Jaramillo sends, but uh, Trejos has been really aggressive. And, and that's one of those underrated oh, yeah, things. Yeah, you're right about that. 
and bug jockeys, man, they sometimes they when you have that weight advantage and you're on the inside and you believe your horse is going to be best on the lead, a lot of times they will send. So I, I think you might see see fake muse send out there and Treo send. And yes, Jaramillo is extremely aggressive as well. I mean, he, he's one of those guys who loves sending. But I'm not a huge fan of the fairgrounds turf races when you're moving over oh. toward towards toward uh, Gulfstream Park. And there's a couple things to like. I mean, that was first time Lasix. So we're getting second time Lasix here. He's also breaking out of the one post and he cleared by two lengths early and then slowly came back to the pack. I mean, he had a clean lead, full length lead at a half mile going 48 and one, and he wasn't able to come home in 12s. So that race to me is, is sneaky bad on paper. We talked about the race before for the three horse being sneaky good. That one to me is sneaky bad because you see this, you see all these positives, but that horse really should have won with those internal fractions and that early lead and that post position. Now he's not going to be inside speed. You're going to be floated out a little bit more and the horse hasn't shown any ability to stalk and close. So, I think that the two sends, and I'm not in love with the six in this spot, even if he's able to make the lead. Player, you got this one covered. I love how it all comes full circle. You can find Mike Somich. He is at Somobomb. That's S-O-M-O-B-O-M-B-1-8. And all you have to do is when you find that, you'll see all the <laughs> tweets about how much money he's made everybody at the tracks. You'll, you'll know you've come to the right place. Also part of Racing Dudes. Dot com. Mike, man, I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on in. You're a part of my crew now. So we'll make sure we stay in touch there on Twitter. Sounds good, Ken. Yeah, we got to grab a beer next time. We're both the same track. <laughs> Everybody knows I'm cool with that. Mike, thank you for being our final guest coming through Longshot Lounge. want to thank Jay Hovde, a longtime journalist and columnist in Thoroughbred Racing for his insight and just <laughs> pointing me in the right direction um, with the book. The book is called I Dedicate This Ride, and it's by Frank X. Walker, and it has to do with Isaac Murphy's journey and his his words, his life, and it's all put into to outstanding uh, poems from Frank X. Walker. So I really want to thank the Poet Laureate from Kentucky for his time. Just an amazing man, really helping me with my own journey. And we really hope that you guys get something out of this, and we hope that you stick and stay with us. We continue having this conversation as it evolves and progresses every single week. Until then, we're going to see you next time right here on Believe in Horse Racing. I'm Ken Rudolph. Hey, let's get this money together. Peace. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.